My name is Mary Conquest. I'm your host for Safety Labs by Slice, the podcast where we explore the human side of safety to support safety professionals. We move past regulations and reportables to talk about the core skills of safety leadership, empathy, influence, trust, rapport, in other words, the soft skills that help you do the hard stuff. Hi there. Welcome to Safety Labs by Slice. We've all had a bad day at work, sometimes many bad days. But when these bad days are a direct result of poor work design, a harmful social environment, or systemic workplace issues, they can turn into much more than a bad day. They become symptoms of poorly managed psychosocial hazards. Our guest today has built a career from understanding workplace psychological health and safety and helping organizations discover, mitigate, and manage psychosocial risks. Jason Van Shee holds a master's degree in occupational psychology. He's been working as a registered psychologist for over 15 years. In 2014, Jason co-founded People Diagnostics, the company behind Flourish DX, which is a psychological health, safety, and well-being digital platform that takes an integrated and risk-based approach to workplace mental health. Jason is the lead contributor for Flourish DX. He co-hosts the Psych Health and Safety podcast and is the lead instructor for the ISO 45003 Academy, offering free resources to help organizations understand and implement the international standard on psychological health and safety at work. Jason is speaking to me from Perth. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Mary. So let's start with sort of an overview. Can you give me a broad strokes history of the awareness of workplace mental health issues? So when did employers start taking the conversation more seriously or have they? Uh, There's an argument to say that they probably haven't been taking it seriously enough. And it's only recently on the back of the pandemic that they've started to pay more attention. But I guess, you know, the idea of uh, mental health interventions in the workplace have probably been popular for the last 10 to 15 years. It's where we've devoted our attention though, which has really changed, I guess, in the last a year or two. Largely when companies look at workplace mental health, they look at the illness end of the continuum. So there's a lot of effort and time spent on, hey, let's create awareness, let's try and reduce stigma, let's get people support. And that's often through the, the use of things like employee assistance programs or EAPs. And then... That was kind of like where it started and where a lot of effort still is today. Then there was kind of the rise of things like, let's make people more resilient. You know, if they're stressed at work, let's try and get them to be able to cope with that and bounce back if they have any issues. With the rise of digital tools, let's give them access to mindfulness or let's give them access to self-care tools that they can kind of be gamified to do and to practice in order to remain mentally healthy and prevent mental illness. So that's kind of like a progression that we've seen occurring over the last probably 10 to to 15 years. It's very common these days that, you know, things like employee assistance is is a benefit that most large companies provide to their employees and that's globally. What we're seeing now though is more of a shift to going, well, how can we be more preventative? How can we think about the role of the workplace? And I guess for your audience being health and safety, you know, this is now where health and safety starts to get involved and thinking about things systemically and and from a risk-based approach. Yeah, I was going to say it sounds like it started with sort of, if you'll excuse me, cleaning up the mess of poor mental health and a shift now towards, oh, maybe if we prevent these issues, they won't be so serious. (laughs) We won't have any messes. Yeah, yeah. 
A lot of reactive work. I mean, a good analogy would be thinking, oh, well, you know, people are going to get injured at work, so let's do really good rehab. Yeah. You know, that's kind of like been the focus, right? Whereas we know in health and safety, well, if we can prevent injuries from happening in the first place, you know, not only is that good for workers, but it's also good for productivity and organizational performance as well. Okay. So how do you define psychosocial risk? Okay. So psychosocial risk is basically the likelihood and consequence of harm occurring based on exposure to a psychosocial hazard. So I guess more importantly, uh, a psychosocial hazard is anything in the design or management of work that can contribute to stress. Now, we all know a little bit of stress is good, right? So uh, you've all probably been stressed before because uh, you've had an exam due the next day or a piece of work. And a little bit of stress can be quite motivational and make you quite productive and focused. However, if that stress is ongoing, um, let's say, for example, you had a deadline every single day that you had to hit. Well, that's going to take a toll. Or if you're exposed to very significant stress like occupational violence or a traumatic accident that you've witnessed, well, those things don't actually take a lot of exposure in order to lead to an injury. So psychosocial hazards are these things that cause stress and it's, it's the ones that are generally ongoing for a period of time without respite or that very high level of stress that can lead to a psychological injury occurring. Right. Which, you know, as safety professionals, unfortunately, I'm sure that um, our listeners are familiar with some of those traumatic incidents. What kind of activities or systems comprise psychosocial risk management? So typically, uh, and I've got to say, we're talking about companies here at the bleeding edge um, because it's not popular at the moment. It's uh, just kind of recently that more companies are starting to switch on and start to do this. But it's generally something that's included in the occupational health and safety management system. So in the same way that we manage physical hazards by taking a risk management approach where we're identifying hazards, assessing risk, controlling them, monitoring them over time and consulting with workers throughout that process, in the same way, we can actually have that same approach to psychosocial hazards and then fitting that in with how a company manages risk as well in, in general. So it's, it's not commonplace But through things like ISO 45003 that we're going to talk about today, you know, it is becoming understood that this is actually best practice. Mm -hmm. And in companies or countries, I should say, that have regulations in place that kind of force them to do this, like Germany, for instance, who've had regulations in place since 2014, uh, particularly in large organizations, we are seeing high, high adoption of, you know, that kind of risk management, continuous improvement approach. So you touched a little bit, but Please expand on what are the benefits of managing psychosocial risk and also what are the consequences of mismanaging or not managing psychosocial risk? We've all heard of, you know, the great resignation. I think the the latest term is quite quitting. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> people, if they're not happy with their roles at the moment, particularly, you know, with labor markets the way they are, they realize that they can probably move elsewhere where they might be looked after a bit better or, you know, um, they might feel like they wanted a bit more and, and the company actually is going to do things in their power to make their working conditions and work life a lot nicer than maybe where, wherever they are currently. So one of the benefits of having a psychologically healthy and safe workplace is not that just people are happier and, you know, have higher levels of well-being and less likely to take sick leave, but they're more likely to stay and they're more likely to be productive as well. The culture is likely to be better as a result because people are happier, right? And there's less interpersonal conflict, interpersonal conflict being, you know, a very common psychosocial hazard. So there's lots of, lots of benefits. On the flip side, if a company isn't going to manage the psychological health of their employees by having an approach to understanding and, and uh, managing psychosocial risks, 
not only can there be cultural risks, and like I said, you know, the downside is people are unhappy and then that becomes really quite a toxic environment to be in. There's also legal risks if you're in regulated markets like Australia or, or Germany, where um, the regulators can say, well, look, you actually haven't been following your duty of care to create a healthy and safe work uh, environment. And therefore, there can be financial and even uh, jail time for directors these days in Australia wow. if uh, you know there's something significant happens. So someone, let's say suicides, for instance, after you know exposure to workplace stresses that weren't managed properly, well, then that could actually um, be held all the directors of that company can be held liable. So there's financial implications, sorry, legal implications, financial implications as well. And a lot of that is because of the reputational risks or the reputational damage that can happen when a company doesn't do this properly. A really good example was there was a financial advisory firm, quite a large one here in Australia, who um, not only did they have a case of sexual harassment that they didn't manage correctly, they managed it very poorly and that they actually promoted this person who was accused of sexual harassment up into a senior leadership position in the organization. And when that came to light and investors heard about it, it wiped $2 billion off this company's market cap with the, the rise of things like sustainability and ESG and, and um, you know, shareholders being much more willing to penalize companies who aren't doing the right thing by either the environment or to people through you know, the social side of ESG, then they can really be held, companies can be really held to account by their shareholders. That financial advice institution has actually never fully recovered to their market capitalization wow. before this incident either. So there can be, you know, people go, oh, there's fines and these sorts of things in regulated markets if, you know, companies were to not manage this properly and people were to get injured. But the reputational damage that can be done and then the, the cost to the, the company in terms of quite tangible things like their market capitalization is, is a direct result too. So, yeah, there's, there's lots of consequences of not doing it properly, cultural, financial, reputational, legal. So uh, it's, uh, it's, even if you're not in a regulated market, uh, it's worthwhile thinking about how your organization is managing these risks. Now, I, I don't expect you to be intimately familiar with every market, whether unregulated ones, but do you think that expectations of both workers and in this case, shareholders are changing? Do you think people are expecting more in terms of being taken care of and expecting more in terms of the companies that they invest in to do the right thing? Uh, definitely. Yeah. We're seeing sh more shareholder movement and also, you know, investment or institutional investors as well. They are desiring more from the companies that they invest in. So we've all heard of greenwashing, you know, um, companies trying to make themselves look better uh, from a sustainability perspective than what they are. But the thing with things like social media these days is uh, it's very hard, hard and, and Glassdoor and, and these other mm -hmm. review sites of companies, very hard to kind of um, uh, get rid of any negative reviews that are coming from your employees that can be made public very, very easily. So, you know, investors can see that and, you know, they can hold uh, organizations to an account as a result of that. So, um, you know, it's, it's not just in regulated markets, as you're pointing out, Mary, it's, it's also, you know, thinking about the reputation of the organization and how you care for workers, mm -hmm. um, not just from a physical health and safety space, but also the design and management of work, which is this psychosocial component, which has this impact on their psychological health is also very important. I imagine too, even the leadership, even a leadership that may have tolerated some poor behavior. I don't imagine it feels good to be a leader <laughs> in that kind of a, a toxic environment to know that you're somewhat responsible 
that's just an aside. But oh, I don't think I don't think there's any um, disagreeing with that. Uh, I think with some leaders, though, they uh, first of all, there's a very low understanding mm-hmm. of psychosocial risks. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've I've defined it up the front of this podcast, thankfully. So thanks for giving me that opportunity. But I'd imagine a lot of your listeners may not have even heard of psychosocial hazards or psychosocial risks before this podcast episode either. So for leaders who aren't even in the health and safety space or aren't a psychologist, they're not going to necessarily understand it either. Mm. And things like concept confusion, things like psychological safety, which sounds so similar to psychological health and safety, but is in fact a very different construct, that just confuses and muddies the waters even further for leaders. So um, I, I don't think leaders would be happy, the majority of them anyway, would be happy knowing that they are inadvertently harming the psychological health of, of workers based on how work is going on and what people are exposed to. At the same time, I think a lot of them just don't know any better and, and they, mm-hmm. they're thinking about mental health in the workplace really from this public health model, which is, hey, if people are distressed, let's give them access to assistance right? or let's get up and talk about lived experience and kind of destigmatize it. That doesn't help anyone. That doesn't actually prevent mental illnesses from occurring in the first place. Thinking about what you can do as an employer, and that's to do with how work is designed and structured and their kind of interpersonal elements at work as well. Those things are the things that the employer can control in order to prevent mental illnesses occurring. But most leaders wouldn't be aware of that. So there's a lot of, um, I guess, indifference or um, lack of understanding which is a, a big issue at the moment and a lot of education still to occur, which is why we do our own podcast, right? right. To try and educate the market. So just to be crystal clear then, I'm going to say my understanding of psychological safety as opposed to what we're talking about, which is, and then I'd like you to tell me if I'm way off the mark or if I've got it, but psychological safety is essentially feeling trust that you can bring forward issues to your management without fear of reprisal? Is that? Yeah, without, you know, fear of professional or personal consequences, right? right. Yeah. So um, that's exactly right. It's actually a leadership concept that was really um, brought forward by Amy Edmondson from Harvard University. You can understand the confusion, right? Because mm-hmm. we're talking about psychological safety. And I guess we're talking about something that kind of sounds linked to mental health. I haven't seen any research that actually links psychological safety to better mental health outcomes. But there is this kind of feeling, I guess, in the market that because it has psychological in it mm-hmm. and safety in it, and we're talking about trust and respect and you know lack of consequences or repercussions, uh, that it must have a good benefit for mental health. But there's really, there's a very, well, I haven't seen the evidence base myself. I'm assuming if there is one, that it's very limited. So, but it's it's just bloody yeah, I'm <laughs> concept sure. confusion. It's just the terminology is just so similar. Because remember, again, with psychological health and safety, we're talking about taking a risk-based approach mm-hmm. to the management, understanding and management of psychosocial hazards, very different to a leadership construct like psychological safety. So it's really more analogous to, say, critical risk management. Psychological safety probably does make things better, but this is about work design, really. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So psychological safety could be one element of work design. Right. Which is, you know, how people are able to bring forward something at work. And that's then around the leadership support and colleague support and having that supportive environment where people have a voice and, and are willing to speak up. If that's not if you've got poor psychological safety, that could be an example of a psychosocial hazard. But it's not it's one element of right. you know, something that's multi pronged right. when it comes to psychological health and safety. Yeah. That's about where the the similarities begin and end, unfortunately. Okay. Well, I'm glad we had a chance to clear it up, though. 
So on this show, we don't usually discuss regulations because regulatory bodies differ country to country. But with 167 member nations, the International Organization for Standardization, or ISO, is nearly universal. So in June of 2021, ISO published a new management system standard on psychological health and safety at work, which is ISO 45003. So my first question is, did this replace anything that was in place or is this a completely new standard? Yeah, no, so it is a completely new standard. It is a child standard of ISO 45001, which is the international standard for occupational health and safety management systems. And many of your listeners would be very familiar with ISO 45001. So it didn't replace anything. It came out of the understanding that psychosocial hazards need to be managed a little bit differently than what physical hazards do in the workplace. So it was decided that we really needed a separate standard on this. Uh, and just to be clear, it's it's not regulation. It's a voluntary standard. Mm-hmm. But in regulated markets, again, like Germany and Australia, if you're to follow this, because it is an international best practice standard, more likely than not, you're covering most, if not all, of your legal responsibilities. Okay. So how specifically is ISO 45003 helpful? Yeah, so it's helpful for any organisation that wants a um, structured approach to understanding and managing psychosocial hazards. It really takes uh, an organisation through all of the necessary steps from, you know, leadership support and commitment, the competence requirements uh, within an organisation. It's not explicit in terms of how you should assess risk, but it does take you through that kind of plan, do, check, act approach around, okay, let's assess risk, let's now put in controls. Let's now check to make sure that those controls have been effective and then we're continuously improving. It also has some recommendations in there around injury management and return to work. So what should you consider doing if someone has experienced a psychological injury and then you're bringing them back into the workplace? So how do you prevent a relapse or an exacerbation of an underlying issue? Thinking about accommodations that uh, an employee might need. So it's quite a, a structured approach it's designed to be a continuous improvement. So it's um, it's not about becoming a, a great mentally healthy workplace overnight. Mm-hmm. It's about, you know, regular iterations to continually improve where you're at. And it also talks about how that approach sits within an occupational health and safety management system. So that means it's not actually done in a vacuum, which mental health activities often are. It's kind of like, oh, we're doing this as kind of like a mm-hmm. an event or we're doing this as a one-off, whereas this is no, this is actually integrated in how we operate as an organization not just this this one-off event that is unlikely to be sticky or have any really meaningful difference. That brings up a couple of questions. The first one is you're talking about structure. So international standards, I would think, need to be flexible enough that they can be adapted to a variety of different industries and, and organizations. But at the same time, they have to give some useful structure or else there's no point. <laughs> Where do you think ISO 45003 falls on this kind of flexibility to structure spectrum? Yeah, yeah, quite a bit because, um, yeah, so first of all, like I said, it covers kind of like the main things like the leadership support and competence requirements. And that, that's kind of required regardless of what industry you're in or, you know, what job roles you have or what market you're in. Where it does provide flexibility is uh, in how you assess psychosocial risks. So that might be through qualitative methods like interviews or focus groups. At scale, it could be done through surveys and using digital tools online and that sort of thing. And they also talk about, you know, the different psychosocial hazards that they recognize that can have this detrimental effect on psychological health. 
but it's not the the whole list and and not all of those psychosocial hazards will apply to every organization either so it's giving good recommendations of things where you can start i guess but when you're getting into the nuance bit about how we are understanding these risks and also how we're controlling them there's actually a fair bit of customization that an organization can make because of their their context so you were talking about the integration and or siloing of psychological health and safety. So in a typical organization, is there a, a department where you think the responsibility for this kind of management falls most naturally? Is it OHS? Is it HR? Is it a combination? Yeah, see, this is the thing. So traditionally, um, workplace mental health has really been in the portfolio of HR mm-hmm. or employee benefits. What this standard really signifies is actually, no, this should be managed like any other health and safety risk. Um, and so really health and safety should be taking the lead. I liken it to how a health and safety professional might work with an engineer. So a health and safety professional might identify a risk to based on the environmental conditions that employees are exposed to, or maybe there's a particular hazard like lack of guarding on a um, on machinery. So they can identify those hazards, but then they don't go out there with their hammer and um, you know and their, and their tool <laughs> belt to go and fix it. Yeah, duct tape. They get an engineer in, right, to go, all right, can you engineer out this, this hazard? In the same way, um, health and safety, I believe, using this structured approach can help to identify these hazards and, and bring light to them and actually assess the risks associated with these hazards, but then bring in their HR and organizational development counterparts in order to help engineer out those hazards. Mm-hmm. So we have heard pushback from some health and safety professionals saying, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not an uh, OT practitioner. That. Yeah. So uh, in the same way, we don't expect them to be an engineer. We don't expect them to be an architect. We don't Mm. expect them to be an electrician, right? All these other hazards where they have to draw on the normal kind of expertise or professionals to be able to deal with those hazards once they've been identified. So yeah, that's that's something that should be very clear. (laughs) Hopefully I can make it clear. You're not expected to become a psychologist, but to learn enough so that you can just even just identify the risks and raise the problem right? Yeah. Yeah. So being familiar with the main hazards is, is actually very useful. There are tools out there of which, you know, we design and develop one, but there are tools out there to help them to more easily identify and monitor hazards and risks as well. So, um, you know, they don't need to be psychs. <laughs> they, can, <laughs> they can leverage some existing tools and knowledge that's out there. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Going back a little bit to the standard, are there any ways in which you think it it falls short? Are there any missed opportunities in the way it was written or created that you can see? Yeah. One is, um, yeah, the translation piece. In fact, it's interesting because uh, this ISO standard kind of borrows a lot from previous standards that are out in existence in the world, right? So the UK management standards came out in 2004. So that was kind of like the first kind of attempt at this. Probably the most well-known of all the international standards is the National Standard of Canada for Psychological Health and Safety at Work, which came out in 2013. Um, Australia's got some guidance and codes of practice and that sort of thing, which you know are of international quality as well. But the Canadian standard, they recognised that because it was standard, it had to be written in standard ease which sometimes can be difficult to understand. Right. And so what they did was actually came up with a translation piece, another bit that said, okay, this is in lay, layman's terms, nice. what this standard actually means and how, how do you actually implement it. And that's something that we identified ourselves that, you know, there's a standard out there, but if 
people start reading this standard and their eyes just start glazing over, as a lot of people's eyes do when they start reading through these complex standards, it's going to be very hard for them to dissect what do they actually need to do and how they're going to implement this thing and actually realize the benefits that the standard should give you. So that's why we decided to do that translation piece um, through our 45003 Academy to help people to really understand this and, and particularly how it talks to the parent standard ISO 45001, how they sit alongside and complement each other. It's almost an accessibility issue, right? I mean, if you're not using plain language, you're not really communicating. <laughs> I, yeah, I do it's, it's like a lot of these academic articles, you know, the academic articles are written very yeah. dense, right? They're, they're very dense. And often, you know, it's the news articles that come out afterwards about, hey, there's this great bit of research and this is what it means. Yeah. That's actually more valuable often than the original journal article, which is usually paywalled and, you know, <laughs> and then it's not just the paywall, but it's also the the language that is used that makes it very hard to understand what did they actually do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, as with anything, including legal language, it it is important to have a copy of maybe the beginning, starting with the, all the nuances and and everything. But it's, uh, if you really want to communicate with people, I think plain language is, is super important. What kind of reforms have been happening in Australia, workplace health and safety regulation, and how do they affect or what do they mean for psychosocial risk assessment and management? Yeah, so this, this goes back a, a number of years now. So we have a, a Workplace Health and Safety Act uh, here in Australia. And that act was always when it talked about the duty of care that employers uh, and employees have to you know, make sure that the working conditions don't harm people. Um, when that talked about health, it was always supposed to encompass both physical and psychological health. However, the way it's uh, written and the way it's interpreted is often about the physical and it doesn't think about the psychological health. And that's a real issue because in Australia, I can tell you in the years leading up to 2018 and even you know, continuing through the pandemic more recently, that we've just had this gradually rising rate of psychological injuries. So we have a workers' compensation insurance uh, scheme here. So people can make claims for psychological injuries that have occurred due to exposure to, you know, working issues. And so there's this has been this, um, you know, this rising uh, frequency of these claims and then the cost of the claims is really blowing out. So, for example, these days the average cost of a claim is about four times the amount for a physical injury claim or, 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 or wow. the average of all other claims. Wow. So it's really expensive. Yeah, they actually account for about 10% now of all injuries um, in our workplaces but it's not just that percentage amount. It's like the, the cost of these claims because they're more complex. So the average time off work now when someone makes a psychological injury claim is half a year, 26 weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, if you've even done quite a serious back injury or something, you're probably not going to be off work for six months. But yeah, yeah it can be the case. So I guess that there was this um, growing need or, or understanding that we needed to review our act and, and supporting regulations to really make it very clear that employers have a responsibility, not just for the physical health and safety of employees, but also the psychological health and safety. So in 2018, there was a review done by um, a woman named Marie Boland of the WHS Act. And out of 34 recommendations, the second one actually was, hey, we need regulations that deal specifically with psychosocial hazards. And then, so since 2018, there's been a lot of work been happening behind the scenes, other reports that have come out regarding sexual harassment, the Productivity Commission in Australia actually put out a report as well. And, you know, all of these reports are saying the same thing is that what that original recommendation did saying, hey, we actually need 
regulation reform, we need to elevate psychological health and safety to the same level as physical health and safety. Because what we're doing in the mental health at workspace with, again, as we started the, the conversation today on like EAP and uh, mental health first aid and lunch and learns, and it's not having an impact. It's in fact having no impact. We're actually seeing this. It's continuing to get worse, the, the issue rather than any better. So, uh, and then, so what's happened in the background is that regulations have been drafted. In Australia, there is federal legislation that applies to all of Australia except for Victoria. So WA, where I'm based, is the last state to have have joined uh, the Commonwealth legislation. Victoria still sits down on its own. Victoria has already, though, completed its consultation on new psychosocial risk regulation, uh, whereas in uh, the rest of Australia, the model workplace health and safety regulations have been published, but now it's up for all of the states to determine on a state-by-state basis how do they adopt that and incorporate that locally. So. Uh, within the next probably six months, we'll see that that will be in. In advance of that, we're seeing all the regulators. So the regulators are different state by state in Australia as well. All the regulators have been really ramping up their teams with a lot more psychologists, a lot of what they're calling psychosocial inspectors, mm. so that they can enforce these new regulations when they're published. So um, yes, it's not just the new piece of paper. There's going to be a lot of activity. You know, uh, So watch this space in Australia in the next probably six to 12 months, there's probably going to be a lot of cases made public where companies are going to be held to account for um, making sure that they are creating a work environment where people aren't getting ill uh, as a result of it. Do you have a sense of where the same conversation, of where the conversation is in other countries compared to Australia? Yeah. So I'm aware in in Europe, there's um, about 19 countries, including Germany, which I mentioned, um, that already have regulations in in, in place. I read an uh, article recently about the regulations in Germany. They introduced that in 2014. Five years later, when they uh, interviewed employers, they found that the adoption of the regulations was and, and completing things like psychosocial risk assessment was only being done by about 20% or so of, of employers, but 70% of large employers, so that's mm. more than 250 employees, were doing psychosocial risk assessment. So that's what I was saying before, it's more the larger employers that we think will be the, the early adopters of this. So hopefully it's higher now, a few, few years after 2019 um, in Germany, but 70% after five years in place that companies were actually doing the right thing is great. And now I would say in Australia, maybe 10% if we're lucky, that are currently doing psychosocial risk assessment. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see um, how that speeds up. So then other countries like Canada and, and the UK they have similar uh, a similar workplace health and safety legislation approach to what we do. They're still relying though on that general definition of health rather than calling out psychological health separately to the physical health. But I'm, I'm thinking given that we're all part of the Commonwealth, you know, if Australia can do a good job of it, then UK and Canada might actually uh, follow suit in the coming years. As a safety practitioner, how do you measure or research or get your finger on the pulse of you know, you, you have to monitor these risks. It's, you know, you can't just check a box one day and say, well, we've done all the things. You Even if, if you have done, quote unquote, all the things, you'd have to continue to monitor that in some fashion. So what kind of research methodologies, like you mentioned a few, but just practically speaking, what does it look like? Yeah. So if, if we think about the process, right, the, the first thing we need to do is to identify the hazards. Now, traditionally, that 
at scale has been done through a survey look, that looks very similar to an employee engagement survey. Right. So if we're trying to understand um, a construct like workload, right? So work overload is a psychosocial hazard. Um, but workload, we might ask three or four questions like I have to work to demanding deadlines or I have to work very fast. So a number of questions to do with workload. Then what we'd do is we'd get a, a score, let's say out of seven, and then we can compare it to a, a benchmark. Now, whilst these types of surveys have been useful in understanding the design of work, like workload by employees is perceived generally as low, medium or high, it doesn't actually tell us the risks associated with that. Mm. So remember, risk is likelihood and consequence of harm. So if you're getting a score of 5.1 out of 7 compared to a benchmark of 5.2 out of 7, that tells you that maybe you're doing a little bit better or worse depending on the, the direction of the survey scale than the benchmark. But it doesn't tell you the likelihood and consequence of harm occurring. So what we have really felt is that the tools that are currently in existence, particularly the quantitative ones, the qualitative ones like focus groups and interviews, you know, that's pretty basic for a HR or OD practitioner to be able to do. But the the quantitative ones we don't actually feel are fit for purpose for risk assessment. So we felt that there's actually a need to move to more exposure assessment methodology So more from the discipline of occupational hygiene. So if you think about how a hygienist would measure for the risk of hearing loss due to noise exposure at work, that person would need to measure the severity of the noise. How loud is the noise in that work environment? But they don't just measure the severity once, right? It's not just one loud noise generally that will lead to harm occurring. You also need to know the frequency of that exposure and you need to know the duration of that exposure as well. So if it's happening, so if it's very loud and it's happening, you know, on a daily basis for an hour at a time, that's probably going to lead to, to hearing loss. And in fact, we actually now have recognized exposure limits. What is the safe level of noise exposure before you can expect someone to experience harm? So in the same way, we felt that rather than just asking three or four similar questions around elements of work, around things like autonomy and workload and supervisor support and bullying, it's actually better to understand the severity, frequency, and duration of the stress experienced as a result of exposure to those hazards. And so, yeah, we, we have this new form of risk assessment that we've developed. I, don't, I haven't seen it anywhere else in the world. I believe we're the first ones to do it. We might have to look at patenting our approach. <laughs> but um, yeah, we, we actually believe that this will be a much better way of understanding risk. And what we're um, in the midst of doing at the moment is linking that to longitudinal outcomes of things like burnout, psychological distress, um, illness absence, and that sort of thing to build up a predictive algorithm so that once a, a, say, a health and safety practitioner has used our tool across a group of individuals, um, they can very quickly identify the hazards and then they can get a risk associated with it. So the idea is we want to be able to say, hey, based on all of the psychosocial hazards that you've assessed here, let's say there's eight of them, your cumulative injury risk is 80. Now, what does the score of 80 out of 100 mean? Well, that would mean if you did nothing in the next six months, you could expect 30% of your employees to experience burnout. are going to take time off work due to work-related stress. Maybe in workers' compensation claims, if there is that uh, scheme in in place, maybe, you know, 3% of employees are going to make a a workers' compensation claim for a psychological injury. Now, that's a very tangible risk, Mm -hmm. which is based on this predictive algorithm. It's even better than a a risk matrices where you're trying to estimate, you know, on a, you know, is this a green or an orange or a red risk? Because it's like, well, what does that actually mean? Well, this is a very tangible risk. And then it's about escalating that up to leadership and going, well, are you comfortable with this risk? And, uh, you know, the employer might go, hey, yeah, no, we're happy with that. You know, we 
happy with 30% of our employees burning out. Hopefully they're not saying that, but you know, that, that might be their risk appetite. <laughs> I would say, can I get that in writing, please? <laughs> yeah. Whereas others would go, all right, no, that isn't acceptable. What do we need to do to bring that down to a level that we're comfortable with? Let's say, hey, we're going to accept there's going to be some people burning out, but we want that down to 10%. So how far do we have to reduce the risk and what are the things that we need to focus on in order to bring down that risk amount? Uh, risk risk the most. And um, that's where our tool will also go, well, these are the biggest risks or hazards that are contributing to that that cumulative injury risk. So I think largely the tools haven't existed to date for health and safety practitioners in particular to play the game and and really be able to understand uh, hazards and risks well. And that's where we're trying to make the biggest difference with what we're doing. Um, the other thing, as you pointed out, is the monitoring mm-hmm. of, of hazards. How do you know if your risks are being reduced and if hazards are being addressed appropriately or if new hazards are emerging. And again, traditionally, the way you do that is through these surveys. And these surveys might be 30 to 60 minutes, which can have a big impact on operations. So we thought, well, actually, there's a better way of doing it. If we're only trying to identify hazards and not really assess risk, we could just use something that looks very similar to a mood check-in, which is very common in mental health apps. Mm -hmm. But once people have rated themselves positively or negatively on a, a continuum of, you know, feeling angry and stressed up to happy and joyful... Let's ask them from a work perspective, what's actually contributing to that? So in the end of this 30 second assessment, you can actually get a good understanding of these are the things we should be celebrating at work. These are the things we should be doing more of because they're actually contributing to a positive well-being for our employees. But hey, there's all these things that people are reporting when they have negative uh, check-ins that from a work perspective that are contributing to that. So there are psychosocial hazards. So these are the things that we really need to hone in on. By using that 30-second assessment on a regular cadence, you know, every month or two, um, a health and safety practitioner could kind of keep a, an eye on, you know, what are the main hazards, uh, the controls that we pu- have been putting in place, are they being effective or not, um, are there new hazards emerging, you know, that, that sort of thing. Hmm. So, um, yeah, we're, we're very conscious of, hey, if we're going to do this, we need to minimise disruption to operations as much as possible, whereas in the past, I think they've been really academically led and academics are really interested in how, how do we get as much data as possible? And it doesn't really, they don't really care so much about the impact on operations. Uh, whereas we're thinking, well, if we actually want to make a difference, we need the company to accept these practices and these tools. And the only way you're going to do that is to make them really accessible and, and time effective as well. Yeah. I mean, that's much more scalable than, than a long interview type, you know, and bonus, everyone knows emojis, right? So... <laughs> Yeah. There's there's That's already right. and, that and language it, there. <laughs> yeah, and you reduce a lot of literacy uh, issues as well, right? Yes. By having simpler tools. So yeah, and and the other other issue with academic tools is like if you want to use them in you know in multinationals where you've got multiple languages, even in North America, right? Spanish is is very common, or in Canada you've got French as well. So it's it's very hard to actually translate these tools effectively into different languages and then be able to do direct comparisons. Right. between how French-speaking employees are rating it compared to English-speaking doesn't necessarily cover the same nuance or the same thinking associated with you know these validated measures. So with our approach, it's actually much easier to translate and then do direct comparisons regardless of language because we are using iconography and, and these other things to try and get across meaning, not just the terminology. And the way that people are responding is the same every time. It's not you know a different question for every hazard that we're trying to assess. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, I'm really excited, um, in fact, quite bullish uh, about the impact that we can make once people get their hands on these tools that actually make 
like help them to do their job in this space. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, these employee perception surveys that we have used to understand the work context have been around since like 1974. And there hasn't been a lot of innovation since, you know, in almost 50 years. The, the biggest thing we've done in the last 50 years is taken these paper and pencil surveys and put them online. <laughs> in the meantime, they've probably gotten longer because, uh, you know, it's very easy then for academics to go, oh, we're just chucking a few more survey scales here and we'll answer a few more research questions that we've got rather than shorter. So, uh, you know, this, what we're doing, um, I'm really excited about because I, I feel like it can actually make a big difference to companies actually operationalizing psychosocial risk management with the right tools that will give them the answers they need in a, in a shorter period of time. I don't know if you're delving into this, but, you know, you've got a predictive algorithm with the advances in machine learning. The sky may be the limit on how, you know, the problem was analyzing all this data. Well, if you have computers on the task, then it's it's a lot easier than, as you were saying, like a matrix. That's right. I mean, um, you know, at the moment, the, the very best you might be able to get is looking at each hazard in isolation, like work overload or lack of autonomy or bullying and harassment, and link that to um, an outcome. But what we want to do, like I said, is have that cumulative psychological injury risk, which takes into account maybe eight to 10 different hazards. And then the other thing is we're not just interested in the average of how employees are scoring. The average might look okay compared to benchmark, but you might have 20 employees right at the top end of, of the continuum that are highly likely to burn out and have, there's an injury risk there. So you don't just go, oh, we're just going to look at the averages for this population. You really need to look at the distribution of the population as well and, and their ex- exposure. And that's where things like machine learning will actually be able to look at that whole distribution of employees and the potential harm of those employees and actually give you that injury risk. Yeah, averages and medians can be quite deceptive and make you look better or look like there's less risk there than what they might actually be. What advice do you have for companies who are wanting to move forward without knowing where I guess they're starting from? But I'm thinking listeners, like what advice do you have for them if they if they want to move their own companies forward in the management of workplace mental health? Yeah, so I think a good way to start is to take stock of what you're currently doing. Most workplaces have something in place, whether it's an EAP, whether it's peer support programs, whether it's awareness, raising, training, that sort of thing. Take stock of what you've got. It would be useful to plot that against um, what's known as the integrated model of workplace mental health. And that basically recognizes that mental health is a continuum, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, you've got people down the bottom end of that continuum who are distressed or have a mental illness. You've got a group that might be languishing, so not quite at that diagnostic level of having a, a disorder, but still not doing the best. You have this big group of employees who are mentally well, and then you have this group who are flourishing or thriving at work. So really, you, you want to think about, well, we need to meet people where they're at. And what you'll find is with a lot of organizations, as we mentioned from the outset, a lot of it's actually happening just in that reactive space for those mm-hmm. employees who are already distressed. But think about what else are we doing as an organization that promotes flourishing? So what are the things that we're doing to really helps people to optimize their well-being and quality of life? Um, but then also for those people in that, that middle section, you know, how are we preventing harm? So what, is, what are the risk-based approaches? So really think about it in those three buckets. So take when you're taking stock of what are the things that we're doing, and really you want a number of things in each of those buckets. So you want to be doing things that mitigate illness, you want things that prevent harm, and you want things that promote flourishing. So yeah, take stock of what you've got. We don't believe that the mitigate illness or the promote flourishing stuff actually moves the needle enough uh, when it comes to mental health. We think, and probably your listeners would agree, that taking that risk-based approach uh, where you're taking that continuous improvement approach to 
the management and improvement of working conditions will actually lead to a much bigger impact on mental health. I mean, for one thing, you know, it doesn't require behavior change on individuals who are reluctant often to change their behaviors and practice more self-care. You know, it's actually improving the work environment so every employee can benefit from that rather than just that the small percentage of people who might be motivated enough to, to change their behaviors. Mm-hmm. You know, really think about each of those buckets, but yeah, really start thinking how can we bolster what we're doing in the risk management space? And then obviously then you've got things like ISO 45003 and our training academy, which helps to, you know, translate that standard, you know, that can help you to understand how do you do that. I'll have that in the uh, in the show notes for you, the link for that. I have a few questions that I ask all my guests at the end of the interview. So one question is, I'm going to call it the University of Jason. If you were to develop training curriculum for safety professionals, now I'm not necessarily talking about specifically psychosocial hazards, but what kind of soft skill do you think would serve them well that you might focus on relationship building or listening or... yeah. I have one which is my favorite, which is compassion. Mm. So, you know, there's all this talk about EQ, so emotional intelligence, there's practicing empathy, and it's all well and good to understand where people are at and how they're feeling. But compassion is action orientated. It's actually taking that understanding of how people are feeling and their personal circumstances and then doing something about it. So it's all well and good for a line manager to say, oh, I understand that you're stressed great, deal with it. <laughs> like we can't do anything about it. For a line manager to go, well, okay, well, I understand your stress. Let me see what we can do together in order to address that. Let's talk about, you know, um, some of these psychosocial hazards, like your work demands, like, you know, how much support you're getting, um, the flexibility of your, your commitments based on other things that are going on in your life. Let's think about the accommodations that we can make. So, I think it's yeah one thing to try and teach uh, leaders EQ and empathy, but if you really want to make a difference, then make them compassionate leaders and, and look at how can they work with their employees to make meaningful improvements to the way that they're working for that would have benefit for their mental health. Hmm. And that would make a very solid foundation for trust as well. Absolutely. So next question, if you could go back in time to the beginning of your career and you could only give yourself one piece of advice, what do you think that would be? I'd say, uh, yeah, don't be afraid of trying something new or, you know, moving on from an organization after you've kind of learned enough. Mm. Um, so funny story when, um, well, it wasn't funny at the time, but my first job out of getting my master's degree was in a um, kind of like where a lot of org site grads go into a role around employee selection and recruitment. So a lot of personality profiling, uh, assessment centers, that sort of thing. And, you know, I probably learned everything I needed to know about that within 12 to 18 months. And I ended up being there for, for two years. But fortunately, in hindsight, I got made redundant after two years because I was working for a consultancy of only about 10 people, small consultancy, but we lost a, a very big client that was worth half of the revenue of, of the business. So obviously they had to reduce headcount. But that then enabled me to go into a role which did focus on risk management and human factors. Uh, and that's an area that I just absolutely love. Um, so I think it's it's very easy to get comfortable in a career and go, hey, I'm an expert at this and I you know, I'm comfortable with where I'm at. There's no risk. I'm getting paid a salary. I know what's expected of me every day, but that doesn't leave a lot of room for growth. Mm-hmm. So if you are good at what you do, if you've got a love of learning, if you're always trying to make yourself better professionally and personally, 
um, there's always going to be jobs for you. So um, don't feel like you have to be a lifer <laughs> at any particular <laughs> organization. Well, now that I have my own business, I essentially feel like I'm going to be a lifer here. <laughs> yeah, but you you <laughs> you write the rules. But, right? <laughs> but exactly. And and I get to go, hey, look, I think that's actually something worthwhile exploring. Or, you know, that's actually something that we're not doing that I'd like to learn and, and be able to apply. And and these days I get to work with some amazing people who are from very different different disciplines to what I am, whether it's, you know, software engineers or whether it's, you know, graphic designers or whether it's management consultants, you know. Uh, marketing people. I, I just love absorbing all of the different things that they can teach me. So, but yeah, I guess, um, you know, in, in short, in, in answer to your question, <laughs> it's like, don't be afraid of um, getting out of your comfort zone. Don't feel like you have to follow a set career path. If you like within an organization, just keep learning as much as you can and, and developing yourself professionally and looking for opportunities for growth. Um, regardless of whether it's in your your current organization or in another organization, if you can't get that level of development within your own organization. Wise words. <laughs> so how can our listeners learn more about some of the topics in our discussion today? Are there, I mean, obviously the ISO standard, but are, are there books or, or websites or groups that you would recommend? Yeah. So like yourself, we have our own podcast. Uh, we have over a hundred episodes, believe it or not. Wow. Uh, psych health and safety is a, is a very niche topic, but we have over a hundred episodes with, and we have guests on every episodes like you do. And these are some of the, the best experts in the world in the space. And that covers academics, practitioners, uh, and everything in between. So that's called the psych health and safety podcast. Uh, for those who are in North America, we've actually got a Canadian-focused podcast, Psych Health and Safety Canada and Psych Health and Safety USA, which is our most recent one. So um, we have a number of podcasts that uh, are suitable for anyone and you know, in different markets as well. Um, the 45003 Academy, which I've referenced today, is free academy, which not only has a foundations course on the ISO 45003 standard, but it's got some other courses on things like how to create the business case mm. for psychological health and safety. So for those who want to take action after listening to this podcast, that might actually be a good place to start to go, well, how do I actually convince leaders that this is worthwhile to do? And it comes with a free template that you can adapt to your own needs to create that internal business case. We've got things on that academy as well, like how to conduct a psychosocial risk assessment and talks through in more detail some of the, the methodology I was referencing today as well that's unique to, to how we operate. So those resources are really good. And then, um, you know, there's things out of Australia that are very good as well. So Safe Work Australia have just in the last couple of weeks, in fact, uh, released a, a model code of practice for psychological health and safety at work. So that's something worthwhile looking up. And Mary, I can give you the link to put into the show notes as well for that, that resource. So, uh, you know, there, 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 are, there are, you know, a number of great resources to get your hands on and have a look at. All right. Lots of opportunity to learn. Where can our listeners find you on the web? I frequent LinkedIn more than I probably should, um, you know, <laughs> probably sacrificing a little bit of productivity. So yeah, uh, you'll find me on, on LinkedIn, Jason Van Shee. Uh, you'll find me easy enough. I don't know if there's another Jason Van Shee on LinkedIn. There might be one other one in the Netherlands. And then, uh, yeah, just direct message me. Happy to chat. Awesome. Well, I'm afraid we're out of time for today. Thanks to our listeners for your support. And thanks so much for speaking with me, Jason. No, thanks for having me on again, Mary. My thanks also goes out to the Safety Labs by Slice team, whose hard work brings you ideas from every corner of the safety world. Bye for now. Safety Labs is created by Slice, the only safety knife on the market with a finger-friendly blade. Find us at sliceproducts.com. Until next time, stay safe. Stay safe.